draw your attention back this morning to Ephesians. Ephesians 1. And since it's been a couple weeks since we've been back here, let's go ahead and read verses 3 through 14. I will remind you that in the original, this is one long run on sentence. Over 200 words that Paul just cannot stop once he gets started with praising and adoring God the Father for what He's done through Jesus Christ and brought to us by the power of the Holy Spirit. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love He predestined us for adoption to Himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of His will, to the praise of His glorious grace, with which He has blessed us in the Beloved. In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace, which He lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of His will, according to His purpose which He set forth in Christ, as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in Him, things in heaven and on earth. In Him we have obtained an inheritance, being predestined according to the purpose of Him who works all things according to the counsel of His will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of His glory. In Him also, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of His glory. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Gracious Lord and Heavenly Father, we thank You, Lord, for the great blessings, the great gifts, immeasurable gifts that You have given to us in Jesus Christ. Lord, things in heaven and things on earth. Lord, those things that are now and those things are, that are still yet to come. Lord, we thank You that that has been guaranteed to us. And we have been sealed by the Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance. Those things by which we are made heirs through our, our being united to Christ in His, His life, His death, His burial, and His resurrection. In the word of truth, the gospel of our salvation that we believe. Lord, we have acquired this inheritance and it is kept for us by the power of the Holy Spirit. Lord, may we be truly thankful. Lord, give us ears to hear this morning. Give us eyes to see. Make our hearts open and receptive to your word that we might hide it away in our hearts, Lord, that we might meditate on it and draw closer to you, closer to each other and and may you give us a great desire to share these truths with others. It's in your name we pray. Amen. You know, there's been uh, several things in, in my life that I thought might be an inheritance for me. I'll tell two stories on my grandfathers. Uh, I had one grandfather that drove an El Camino SS. And I loved that car. I don't know why. It's one of the ugliest cars ever to be on the road, but for some reason I loved that El Camino SS. And it, my grandfather made a promise to me that that car would be mine. Well, my grandfather sold it. 
traded in on a different vehicle. My other grandfather, my mom's dad, had a 19, mid-1950s, mid if you know anything about guitars, it was a Gibson hollow body electric from the 1950s. Perfect condition. My grandfather was a, was a very, my, my, my mom's dad was a very, very different individual. But he took care of things that he, he appreciated. And that is one of the things that he appreciated. And he, he kept this guitar in pristine order. Over and above some of the other instruments that he had. Well, I told him, Grandpa, don't ever sell that guitar. I want that guitar. I fiddle around a little bit with a guitar, and, and a hollow body electric is one of those that I always wanted, and especially one that had the value to it that that guitar had. Well, my grandfather sold that for $500. A fraction, fraction of its worth. Well, needless to say, those two items were not in my inheritance. Those items were kept by the will and the power of men. We have an inheritance that we will read about this morning. And I think that when we read from Hebrews earlier, in verse 17... So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of His purpose, He guaranteed it with an oath. God made a promise to something, and God's promises do not fail. They are unchangeable. God cannot lie. He has made a promise... And what's more, we will see he is, he is Himself, God the Spirit, the guarantee. He is the down payment. He is the earnest of that which He has promised to His heirs. And have we not seen that we, God's people, the saints that Paul in his introductory remarks to Ephesians, the saints in Ephesus, those who are called out, those who are chosen to be saints, those whom He chose, those who He predestined to adoption as sons are given their inheritance as sons. And He has promised this to us and He Himself is the guarantee of that promise. We're not the guarantee of it. Men are not the guarantee of it. God the Holy Spirit is the guarantee of that inheritance. So as we look at our text here this morning, we're going to be dealing with the last part of this long run-on sentence, verses 11 through 14. Verse 11 says, In Him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of Him who works all things according to the counsel of His will. In Him we have obtained an inheritance. In Him, that is, in Christ, we have obtained an inheritance. We must never forget, we must never let our hearts grow dull to the fact that all these things that we have received, all these things that make everything related to our life, our salvation, the church, the fellowship of the believers, 
the love that we have for one another, the structure even of marriage and family, all these things that we're going to be dealing with in Ephesians as we go through Ephesians, the structure of real marriage and family, the, the structure of the church, all these things come to us through Jesus Christ. It is all in him and by him that these things are a reality for us even now. So we are reminded by Paul in this, this long run-on sentence of praise and adoration, this, this doxology, if you will, that Christ is the foundation from which all beautiful, worthy things flow. In Him, we have obtained an inheritance. And how is it that we have obtained this inheritance or these things through Christ? How does an inheritance work? It's through the death of one who by right has possession of all these things. Inherit, an inheritance is not given to an heir while the owner and possessor of these things is living. Think about the way we do wills, last will and testaments, right? Death of that one must take place for the will or the inheritance and that which is to be given to an individual that only comes upon the death of the person who was originally in possession of those things. Look with me at a passage of Hebrews, and I, I trust that we'll see this. Um, you know, there's a great debate over who... Go ahead and turn to Hebrews 9 if you want to. But uh, there's a great debate over who wrote Hebrews. Um, some, some many believe that it was actually Paul, uh, some Apollos, or another follower of Paul. But it really doesn't matter in the grand scheme of things as, as this just like the epistle to the Ephesians, the letter to the Ephesians, is God-breathed. It's inspired by the Holy Spirit. It's given to us to be edifying to us, for, for us to be taught, to learn of God, to learn of ourselves, to learn what God has done. Um, so it really doesn't matter. Uh, but I want you to notice there's some of the same language here that's being used as the letter to the Ephesians that we're looking at this morning from Apostle, the Apostle Paul. So Hebrews 9, 15 through 28. Therefore, he is the mediator of the new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. Since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant, for where a will is involved... And a will, is that not what it gives us our inheritance? For where a will is involved, the death of the one who, is made it, who made it must be established. For a will only takes effect at death, since it is not in force as long as the one who made it is alive. Therefore, not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood, for when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people, he took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. And in the same way, he sprinkled the blood, both the tent and all the vessels used in worship. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. 
Thus it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites. But the heavenly things themselves with, much, with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood, not his own. For then he would have to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, has appeared once for all at the end of ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as it is appointed for man to die once and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. This is our inheritance. This is what ours is ours by right of being adopted as children of God through the working of Jesus Christ. Notice the words that he uses here. That those to those who are called an eternal inheritance. What does Ephesians tell us? How did, how did Christ purchase this for us? We have redemption through what? Through His blood. He offered it up once for all at the end of the ages so that we might be partakers. By the death of the Son of God, the will... The inheritance predestined to be given to those who were chosen in him, called to be saints, predestined to be adopted as sons, might be made a possession of those whom God chose and placed in his son for his own purpose. Do you see what a miracle has taken place in your life if you are saved? Do you see that? Does it not fill you with awe and wonder? at what great things God has done for you in Jesus Christ. In Him we have obtained an inheritance. Not only those things that are given to us now in this vital union with Christ, with which He has blessed us, the redemption, the forgiveness of sin, sin wisdom and insight, which we see and have looked at previously in Ephesians 1, we see that all through Ephesians 1 and the preceding verses that were then the ones preceding to what we're looking at today. But in, in addition to all these things, though they are abiding gifts and will be gifts that, that are with us forever, we now in this passage have our attention drawn to those that are part of the inheritance that are still to come. Those that have not yet been fully realized. Salvation has been achieved in the death of Jesus Christ on the cross, but it is not yet full reality. There is more to come. Ephesians 4.30 says, And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Now this was written after the death of Christ. We're sealed for the day of redemption. Well, does he mean that we're not actually redeemed? No, we have been redeemed. But there is another redemption that still takes place, the redemption of our bodies. When one day, even these bodies, those that have turned to dust in the ground, will one day come out of the grave 
new. There is still yet a redemption to occur. Do you see the already not yet concept that we see so much in the New Testament here? Things that are already ours but not yet in its fullest sense. And we have been predestined according to the purpose of Him who works all things according to the counsel of His will. Brothers and sisters, there is more to be amazed at being a recipient of this inheritance. This is not only a scheme which God before the foundation of the world planned out or predestined to take place. These are being carried out in time as He brings forth the ones whom He called, who He chose in eternity past. Those who He chose to adopt. He is now in time making these things a reality which He, by His might and authority, is carrying out in time. Planned before the foundation of the world, in due time coming to those through the working of the Holy Spirit that are being drawn to Him. William Hendrickson in his commentary on Ephesians, says something that I think is worthy of thinking about and meditating on. He says, His providence in time is as comprehensive as His decree from eternity. You see, His his predestination, His decree from eternity, is being worked out by the power and the sovereignty of His providence. He is seeing to those things which He planned. He is seeing to the working out of those things which He planned in eternity past. God does not leave us with just a plan. He acts and works and carries out, not in a passive manner, but in an active manner, every detail of the plan He predestined before creation took place. He operates with His divine energy to bring about all of His plans and purpose. And that is what we refer to as providence. Scripture is very clear that He does all of this. All of His holy decrees without without even violating the human will. He works this out. He doesn't violate human responsibility in carrying out the plans making them a reality. He, how He does this is an absolute mystery. One day we will know. But how He does this is a mystery to us. Nevertheless, Scripture leaves no doubt about the fact that this is the case. Think about Joseph and his brothers. What did he tell them? You meant it for evil. But at the same time, God meant it for good responsible for the sin that they did, yet God meant it for good. Luke twenty two twenty two. For the Son of Man goes as it has been determined, but woe to the man by whom he is betrayed. This has been determined by God, but the man who betrays him is still responsible. 
Acts 2.23. We have looked at before this passage. This Jesus delivered up, I love this passage, delivered up according to the definite plan and knowledge of God. It wasn't man's plan to crucify Jesus Christ. Peter tells this crowd in Acts chapter 2 that it is the definite plan and foreknowledge of God Almighty. But he says, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Sovereignty of God, responsibility of man. Philippians 2, 12 through 13 says, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, sound so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Responsibility, right? But listen to what he says. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. This is a mystery. But nevertheless, this is truth. All things he predestined according to the purpose of him who what? Who works all things according to the counsel of his own will. And then in verse 12, we read, So that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. There's a lot of differing of opinion on what is meant by uh, here in verse 12 about who were the first to hope in Christ. There's a group of people who believe that this is actually the Trinity who first put their hope in Jesus Christ or their trust in Christ. And I don't think that there's any doubt that in the eternal plan of God, the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit put their trust in Jesus Christ, in the second person of the Trinity. All the things, all these blessings revealed in the first part of Ephesians and throughout the rest of the whole letter of Ephesians are entrusted to the second person of the triune God, Jesus Christ, to be purchased and accomplished through his life, his death, his burial, and his resurrection. So there's no doubt but what? In eternity past, when this plan was, was inaugurated and, 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 and purposed by God the Father, that he put trust in God the Son. But I don't think that's what this is talking about here. I don't think that this is what is in reference to in this particular part of the text. There, this seems to be in context. Um, and us who first trusted and a you which comes in the next verse, in verse 13. Us, the Jews, I think Paul is saying, who first trusted. Us, the Jews who were first given the gospel, and some of whom were given also to believe of the Jews, will be joined by those in verse 13 who also heard and believed. I believe that this is directly related in the context of Ephesians to the mystery that we see revealed in chapter 2 and chapter 3. And we'll get to those later in more detail. But from chapter 2, the Gentiles who were at one, one time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, 
strangers to the covenants and promises, having no hope and without God in the world, who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. And then in chapter 3, Paul tells us this is a mystery that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. This is the gospel Paul tells them of which he was made a minister according to the gifts of God's grace, which was given to him by the working of not his power, but God's power. So I think that this is in reference to those among the Jews who first believed, as opposed to verse 13, those of the Gentiles who were also given the gospel. We'll leave this section for now. Maybe one day in a Bible study or something, we'll return to it, look at it a little bit more in detail. But we'll leave it at that except to say that at the end of this verse, so that we who were first to hope in Christ might be to what? To the praise of His glory. That's the purpose. To the praise of the glory of God the Father. This is a three times over chosen statement from the inspired words of the apostle in this short passage. In this one sentence, three times he makes reference to that. We'll come back to that in a little bit. Verse 13, In Him you also, when you heard, in Him you also, when you heard the word of truth. I believe that this is in reference once again to the Gentiles those who were strangers at one time to the covenants, those who were afar off, being brought near. When you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in Him were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. Well, praise be to God that the Gentiles also have the gospel preached to them. Every single one of us would be without hope in the world if that would not be the case. Every single one of us. But is this not the true promise to Abraham? Do you remember this? This is actually the promise to Abraham. Genesis 12, 1 through 3. If you want to turn there, you can. But it says, Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Do you see that? Certainly the offspring and family of Abraham were to be made into a great nation and blessed greatly. Out of Abraham came David, and out of David came the Lord Jesus Christ. Certainly, there is blessing upon blessing there. But did you notice the last statement here? The last promise given. And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. Let us never forget the truth and the benefit of that promise. The promise that we find as a reality in our text and in Revelation. This is another passage I love. And since studying Revelation some and going through the first three chapters like we did, 
Revelation 5, verse 9 and 10. Listen. And they sang a new song, saying, They bowed down before the Lamb, and they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from just the nation of Israel? No. From every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on earth. The promise is to every nation, every tribe, every tongue, every language. Back to our text, in Him, in Christ also, when you heard the word of truth. In Him, verse 13, you also, when you heard the word of truth, not a truth, not truth indiscriminately, but by the the, by the definite article, the word of truth. This is a truth that must be heard. It must be read. It must be preached, for it is through the foolishness of preaching that word of truth that God has chosen to save sinners. It must be proclaimed. It must be heralded. It is a truth that must be lifted far above all the vain mutterings and musings of this world. It is a most important truth. It must be echoed to the highest peak and down to the lowest depths, for it is the word of truth. It is the truth of who we are. It's the truth of who He is. It is the word of truth which became flesh and dwelt among us. It's the word of truth regarding what He accomplished for those who had no way to do it by themselves. No way. It's the truth that never changes, and it's a truth which transforms and truth which makes alive that which is dead. It is, as our text then goes on to tell us, the gospel of your salvation. The gospel of your salvation. It's the good news of salvation. It is the truth, the good news, the glad tidings of rescue from imminent peril. It's the good news of coming liberation, of redemption, of freedom from bondage. It's rescue from prison. It's freedom from the one that has you in bondage and on the way to eternal death in a hell prepared for the devil and his angels. It's good news of salvation. It's good news that there is one who is able who is up to the task, who has power to accomplish this, one who is mighty to save, one who has accomplished eternal redemption for His people, one who is able to bear the penalty of sin on His self, one who can defeat sin and death. That is the gospel. That is the good news. I I fear that we often grow complacent 
may be the word, or dull in our thinking, uh, when we have been saved in the newness of that unbelievable, amazing, miraculous gift, has worn a bit, do you, do you remember the joy of your salvation? The overwhelming gratitude at that great gift given to you from above when it was made known and the burden of your sin rolled away. Weighed down with guilt, with no relief from the burden of sin. None. I always think of Pilgrim's Progress with this. As Pilgrim had, had read in this book that he had, the, the Word of God, the Word of Truth, he read of, of his state, and this burden just kept on gathering on his back, no relief from it, couldn't get away from it. And it was just unbearable until he found the cross. And it broke free, fell off his back, and rolled down into a tomb. What a beautiful picture of the good news of our salvation. I think we sometimes forget, in a sense, what salvation really is. Uh, for those who have experienced this, and it's, it's our great shame that we do so. Salvation and the plan of salvation is pictured for us in Scripture as a great rescue mission. John Stott states, Christianity is a rescue religion. It declares that God Himself has taken initiative in Jesus Christ to deliver us from our sins. This is the main theme of the Bible, John Stott says. Charles Spurgeon stated it this way, when we, what we mean by salvation is this, deliverance from the love of sin, rescue from the habit of sin, setting free from the desire to sin. And MacArthur stated it like this, the basic idea behind the, that term, the term of salvation, that term is that of deliverance or rescue. And the point here is that the power of God in salvation rescues people. And ultimate, and from the ultimate penalty of sin, which is spiritual death, extended into torment and eternal separation from Him. Salvation is a rescue mission. Scripture paints this picture through the nation of Israel as a type of our spiritual salvation. In Exodus 2, 23-24, During those many days the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God. And God heard their groaning. And God remembered His covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. They cried for rescue. It's as, if, it's as if we've been captured by the most wicked, most powerful, and cruel tyrant in the world and put into prison, bound and blinded. That's our state. We have heard that our death is but days away, and there is no way of escape. All hope is lost, bound fast in change and no way to unbind them. In a pit of darkness with no light and no way to see what lays before us, but the dark anticipation of our very demise. You've been down here so long 
with so little to sustain you that strength is absolutely, totally gone. You can't move, you can't stand, much less walk. No power to move, even if those chains were loosened. And so blind you can't see a door. And then you hear a whisper. A word from somewhere. Another prisoner perhaps speaking in a faint voice a word of truth. He tells of his own imprisonment and capture and the sentence of death that is also upon him. Oh, this is a dreadful state and a most hopeless situation we find ourselves in. But there is a word through this one of a mighty man. A man able to save. And he is coming with salvation. He has a plan to rescue and is one who is mighty to save. All power and all authority is, is, is in this one that is spoken to you of with this word of truth, this gospel of salvation. Is this not good news of rescue? There's one who is able. There's one who has power to save. But look at the dreadful state we're in. But there's one who is up to the task. There is one who has the ability. There is one who has the righteousness, the holiness, the authority. Hope begins to dawn in the heart. And belief that there is a Savior coming and a rescue mission sent to set you as a prisoner free. Fellow prisoner tells you, believe it, it's coming. Before long, you hear the thunderous sounds of doors being torn from their hinges. Light breaks in and your saver breaks through the door, comes up to you and removes the chains that bind you. And the rescuer, the savior, you have no strength. You have no power. He picks you up and carries you out of prison. Out of the bonds and takes you to a safe haven. He tells you that you must stay there until He returns, but He gives you promise to provide for you and you are given all things that sustain you and strengthens you. And He tells you not to fear. Don't fear. Tell others what He has done for you and what He is doing, that He is mighty to save Spread the good news everywhere. Tell all the ends of the earth that others may see Him and be rescued. He tells you He is with you always, even to the end. And He is sending another just like Him. The promised Spirit to guide you until He comes to take you to His own palace, His own home where you will live and abide forever. Is this not what Christ did on the cross? Was this not the words He gave to His disciples? Don't fear. i got to go away, but I'm sending someone else to you. I'm sending the promised one, the Holy Spirit, the Comforter, and He'll be with you. He'll teach you all things. Provide for you. 
I've given you provision to make it through the rest of your stay here until I come again. Have you not heard the word of truth? Have you not heard the gospel of your salvation, the great and glorious news of your rescue? Have you believed in him? This is no fairy tale. This is no story. This is the gospel. It's the word of truth. And we were sealed then with the promised Holy Spirit. And if it wasn't enough that we've been rescued, He has sealed us with His promised Holy Spirit. A seal is used for several purposes in Scripture. And I think all of them are contained in what it means in this passage here to be sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. First of all, it's used to authenticate something as genuine. Secondly, it's to mark one's property. And third, it's to render something secure. All three of these apply. Your salvation and your inheritance through Christ Jesus is sealed by the Spirit. It is authentic. It's genuine. It is a real salvation. It's not false. It belongs to Christ and is granted to you as your inheritance. It is given to you. It marks you as the property of Jesus Christ. And it secures that salvation, that inheritance for you. I would love to look at all the instances that the Scriptures deal with, Old and New Testament, of of seals. Uh, The seal of the tomb. The seal of the the den of lions where, where Daniel was thrown into. The seals of the scroll in Revelation. And the mark of the seal placed upon those who are the people of God in Revelation 7. And then in Ezekiel 9, in one of my favorite passages of Scripture. In Ezekiel 9, where this man that's clothed in white is told to go and place a mark on those who sigh and groan over the abomination of Jerusalem. Put a mark on them. No one can touch them. They're mine. You, Christian, have been sealed with the promised Holy Spirit who is... Verse 14 tells us the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it. He is the guarantee of this. I love the way also some of the other translations translate this. He is the guarantee of it. He is the down payment. He is the earnest. He is the pledge of our inheritance while we are yet on this earth. Until the time when we receive it, In full, at the end of all things, when Christ returns and all things are made new, when even our physical bodies are redeemed and we have obtained in full the the complete and full reality of what our inheritance includes. I don't think we can even just touch the surface of pondering what this means. 1 Peter 1, 3-5 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, 
unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. This is not like some of our earthly inheritance, where we know that we're, we're to be given certain things, but something happens. And that guitar gets sold. Or that El Camino SS gets sold. Or we're told we've got this, this or that, and come to find out when we actually get it, it's, it's tarnished, or it's broken, or it's perishable, and it's rotted away. My inheritance may be a home, and I get into that home, and it's full of termites. And it's going to cost more to, to repair that home than the home is worth. We have an inheritance in Christ, guaranteed to us by the Holy Spirit, who is the seal of our inheritance that is imperishable. Nothing can touch it. Nothing can diminish it. Nothing can steal it away. And then we start to think about what these things are. First and foremost, our inheritance is Jesus Christ Himself. It's Christ. We cannot ever separate any of the blessings received from the person and the work of Jesus Christ. He is our Savior, but He is our salvation. He provides peace, but He Himself is our peace. 1 Corinthians 1.30 says, And because of Him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us. He doesn't just give us these things. He becomes to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. All those things are in Christ, who is our inheritance. He is our inheritance along with all that God blesses to us in Christ. Can you for just a moment imagine our inheritance one day when we will live in perfect peace and nothing, nothing whatsoever will touch that peace. Perfect peace. What about satisfaction? I struggle with satisfaction. Have something, love it, and it just, that love or that satisfaction with that thing starts to diminish, doesn't it? Isn't that the case with our lives? Work so hard for something because we want it, we get it, and it diminishes. The law of diminishing returns, there's even an economic term for it. But to have pure, unending satisfaction in the presence of our inheritance, Jesus Christ. About joy, love, fellowship, praise, thanksgiving, all these things, all guaranteed to us through the power of the Holy Spirit, given to us by the purchase and the work of Jesus Christ, and planned to be given to us, carried out by the wisdom, power, and sovereignty, the providence of God the Father. The Holy Spirit, the third person of the triune Godhead, has been given as proof and down payment for that which we will one day have. 
Do you understand the gravity of this? There can be no greater guarantee than God Himself. What did we read from Hebrews? When He went to swear an oath, there was no one greater to swear it by, so He swore it by Himself. Who is the guarantee of our inheritance? It's God Himself. God the Holy Spirit. And what is the purpose of it? Let's go back to this now. The very ending of verse 14. And why? To the praise of His glory. To glorify Him. No boasting from us. All praise to the Father for His wondrous work and plan. And this is the underlying theme of this doxology, this great, great passage of praise from the lips of Paul, from the hand and the pen of Paul. Praise to God. Verse 6, to the praise of His glorious grace. Verse 12, that it might be to the praise of His glory. And our final verse, verse 14, to the praise of His glory. What's man's chief end? To glorify God and enjoy Him forever. That's going to make up our existence when this inheritance is fully realized. To glorify Him and enjoy Him forever. Think so much as we were dealing with the first three chapters and the seven letters in Revelation. Each one of those chapters has a pro- each one of those letters has a promise attached to it. To the one who conquers, to the one who overcomes, to the one who who is with Him to the end. He gives certain things. And these are blessed promises. Look at them again sometime. The blessed promises that Jesus Christ makes to His people of what their inheritance entails. And it's all to the praise of His glory. Revelation 4. We sing a hymn, uh, a Scripture song from Revelation 4, verse 11. We call it, Thou art worthy. But in verse 8 through 11 of Revelation 4, this pretty much sums up to the praise of His glory. And the four living creatures, in verse 8 of chapter 4 of Revelation, and the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within, and day and night they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to Him who is seated on the throne who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before Him who is seated on the throne and worship Him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne, saying, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. To the praise 
of his glory. He's worthy of our praise. Look what he did for us. He didn't have to do this. He did this for mankind. He didn't do it for the angels. He didn't. We have no scripture that leads us to believe that there is redemption for fallen angels. But for fallen man, there's redemption. There's a rescue plan. Worthy of glory. Worthy of praise. To the praise of His glory, Paul says, three times over in this passage, that is full of giving the triune God, all three persons of the Godhead, glory for the salvation of lost and poor sinners. Read through 3-14 through again sometime and see, I gave you that sheet of paper that shows you where it's talking about God the Father, where it's talking about God the Son, and a visual way for you to understand when it's talking about God the Holy Spirit. He is including all three because it is a work of all three persons of the Godhead. To the praise of His glory. Well, if you're a Christian, I pray that this causes you to want to glorify Him, to want to praise Him, to want to share with others what He's done for you, that we may praise Him, honor Him, in every facet of our lives. You know, there's a reason that we support missions. We want to see others come to experience this same thing that they might also praise and glorify our King, our Lord, our Savior. That every nation, every language, every tribe would be able to do the same thing that we're doing here this morning, meeting, looking to His Word, worshiping Him, praising Him. This is a great privilege. This is a foretaste of what we'll be doing for eternity. Just a foretaste. Just just a, a brief glimpse We ought to be overcome with joy that we have the privilege of knowing these things, seeing these things, having them revealed to us, and our salvation. Pray that we'll share it with others. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Lord, we thank You for Your Word. Lord, we thank You for what Your Word reveals to us. Lord, we thank You that You have have given us a way that we might know You. We thank You that the Word reveals Your character, who You are to us, who we are, that that we might fall before You, Lord, in thanksgiving for salvation. Lord, that we might ascribe to You all glory and all praise for that which You've accomplished on our behalf.
Lord, give us humble hearts. Lord, give us, give us no boasting, no pride. Lord, all that we have to boast in is the cross of Jesus Christ. Lord, draw us close together. That each time we're together, the fellowship that we have might be a picture of that which we will one day have in heaven. We will one day experience when we all with, with untarnished thoughts and, and, uh, and sinlessness for the first time be able to praise and worship you in completeness and in fullness. Lord, give us a, a foretaste of that today. Lord, and for the rest of our lives as we walk through this wilderness, give us, give us the ability to praise you and glorify your name in the way that we should. Lord, we thank you for your plan of salvation. We thank you for the Son who purchased it for us. We thank you for the guarantee that we have, the the person of the Holy Spirit who has been given to us as a seal and a guarantee of our inheritance that is yet to come. And the foretaste of that that we have in Him, thank You for giving Him to us. Lord, the comforter, the, the promised Holy Spirit to guide us as we walk through this world. It's in Your precious and holy name we pray. Amen. Amen.